We continue our study today in the book of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And I want to start by telling you about one of my favorite movies. One of my favorite weekend movies. You've probably heard of it before. It's called My Man Godfrey. Anyone ever heard of that movie? My Man Godfrey, starring William Powell. It was made in 1936, so maybe you never heard of it before. <clears throat> but Godfrey is a man from a wealthy Boston family who, after experiencing a heartbreak, went to live in the city dump in New York. He was what they called an unwanted man. And while Godfrey was there trying to figure out his life, and trying to feel a path forward with his life, these two sisters find him in the dump. And they're mocking him, they're rich people, they're mocking him and they're talking negatively, they're talking down to him. And then finally one of them has mercy on Godfrey and invites Godfrey to become the family butler. But the other sister hated Godfrey, and she'd follow him around and spy on him to try to catch him doing something he shouldn't have been doing. And so one Thursday, Godfrey goes out to lunch with a friend. It's his off day. And this mean sister finds him at lunch, and she invites herself to sit at his table. And as is her usual custom, she's talking down to Godfrey. And she asked Godfrey the question, what do you think about me? Very confidently she asked him, and, and Godfrey looked at her and said, do, do you really want me to tell you what I think about you? I won't get in any trouble if I tell you what I think. No, don't worry about it, Godfrey. Tell me what you think of me. And Godfrey looked her in the eyes and said this, you belong to that unfortunate category that I would call the Park Avenue brat. You are a spoiled child who's grown up in ease and luxury, who's always had her way and whose misdirected energies are so childish that they hardly deserve the comment even of a butler on his off Thursday. Whoa. She was shocked. She was surprised. Back in August, we were all surprised when we learned that former President Donald Trump had been holding classified documents at his home in Mar-a-Lago. We were all surprised to learn the news. But no one was more surprised than President Biden. In fact, Biden had some choice words for the former president. He said, no responsible person would ever keep classified documents at their private residence. Who does that? <laughs> then last month it was revealed that Biden had classified documents stored in his residence in Delaware, in his private offices. And despite that, he told us that we should know that he takes classified documents very seriously. But still, we were surprised to learn that news. But why were we surprised? 
Mike Pence also expressed his dismay at the former president, at his lack of professionalism. He said that clearly possessing classified documents in an unprotected area is not proper. That's Mike for you. Then at the beginning of the new year, classified documents were found at Pence's residence. And again, we were all surprised. But why? Mike said to us, listen, mistakes were made. Oh, oh that's the explanation. Mistakes were made, and he's right. That mistakes were made. But not his mistake of taking the classified documents home. The mistake was on our part because many people assumed him to be better than Trump and better than Biden and they were proven wrong. That was the mistake. In the beginning of chapter three of the book of Romans, we learn that the Jews have some advantage and some benefit beyond what other people may enjoy. Paul the apostle tells us that the word of God was first delivered to them. That's their advantage, that's their benefit. And when you hear that, it's easy for one to assume that this makes the Jews different or better than all other people. And today, Paul wants to clarify something for us. He wants to clear up any misconception. So he says in verse nine, what then? Are we, the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all, Paul says. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. We have already charged that none of us have any redeeming qualities. Even though most of us like to imagine that there is some good in us to some degree, no, Paul says, all are under sin. The law is very clear-eyed and the law is deftly accurate in its estimation of mankind. The law says it plainly in verse 10, that there is no righteous person, full stop. <laughs> there is no righteous person, not the Jews, not the Gentiles, neither the saint nor the sinner, there is none righteous, he says. Last week during the Chinese New Year celebration in California, someone came into a ballroom where many people had gathered to celebrate. He came in and he murdered 10 people with an 11th person dying from gunshot wounds a few days later. And before they knew who the gunman was, the media coverage, they covered it as if it was a hate crime. They automatically assumed that it was a hate crime. Then they learned that the person who did the dastardly deed was an elderly Chinese man. And we were all surprised. What? But why were we surprised? On Friday evening, the world watched the footage of the beating murder of Tyle Tyree Nichols, black man from Memphis, Tennessee, who died mercilessly at the hands of the police. And one of the black commentators on the TV show said, you know, the black community is very dismayed at what has happened. But we are much more saddened at the fact that the five police officers were all black men. We are surprised. But why? 
The black community, the Asian community, and the nation may have been surprised by the actions of those we esteem to be better than others. But you know who was not surprised by any of this? The law. Because the law had already determined that all of us are sinners. No surprise to him. There is no righteous person, not even one. What does it mean to be righteous then? To be righteous is first of all to understand the will of God. But the law says here, there is no one who understands. To be righteous is to seek God, the law says. But then the law turns around and says that there is no one who seeks out God. Or there is no one who seeks out God for God's sake alone. But we all have ulterior motives. All of us, the law says, have mixed motivations. And none of us are purely and only seeking after God and his will. There is no one righteous. And there is no one who seeks out God. To be righteous is to stay focused, to stay the course through good times and in bad, always desiring God's will, to not allow ourselves to get distracted. But the law says in verse 12 that we have all turned aside. To be righteous is to be honest, to be truthful. But the law declares that together we all have become corrupt. It is to do good, but the law says there is no one who does good. There is not even one. He says that we kill with our words. Our throats are open graves. The law says that we are habitual liars. With our tongues we keep deceiving. He says that we're vicious. The venom of a cobra is under our lips. This is the law. Giving it to you raw. And of course, right now you're thinking, not, not me, I, I'm not deceptive. No, the, the law says, yes, you are. All of you are. All of you are. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, the law says. And with that one, I'll make a confession. On Tuesday, it was icy outside. I was sitting at a red light in my bus going to pick up some people, take them to a social services event. And a pickup truck came to make a right turn and Unfortunately, he didn't make the turn all the way, and he, he was stopped by my door. He crashed into the side of my bus. And the first words to come out of my mouth was not, God have mercy. The first words to come out of my mouth was not, Lord help me. And I was immediately reminded of this text. Their mouths are filled with cursing. The law goes on to describe us and say that our feet are swift to shed blood. We always want a fight, always willing to do another person harm if it serves our best interests. Destruction and misery are in our paths. We destroy everything like locusts. We destroy relationships. We destroy one another through wars. We even destroy the planet. Destruction and misery 
are in our path. And we, the law says, we have not known the way of peace. We thrive in chaos and confusion. We're pessimistic. We wake up in the morning and instead of being grateful, our minds immediately focus on whatever challenges we might face today. We are naturally pessimistic. And often it seems like we don't know what to do with any peace. We don't even know what peace is. We don't know how to rest. We don't know how to let go and furthermore, we don't care to. The law says that there is no fear of God before our eyes. And with that, we may as well consider ourselves to be red. Red better than Godfrey Red, the rich sister. When you read that, it can feel very painful as you hear the law of God giving his assessment, his accurate assessment of who you really are beyond the facade of religion, beyond your Christian speak, the law says, I know who you really are. That can be disarming. Paul says, Paul says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, to the Jews specifically, so that every mouth both the mouths of the Jews and the mouths of the Gentiles, so that every mouth may be closed. Just stop talking. Just stop trying to make your case. Just stop trying to convince me that you are holier than thou. The law gives us this description that says, now close your mouth. <laughs> I just read you, now be quiet. That's hard, man. That's hard. It's difficult when you get such an accurate read of your own self. But this is the purpose of the law. To strip us of any pretense of righteousness and to awaken all of us from any self-affirming illusion that gives us a false sense of spiritual security. It is the role of the law of God to force us to see ourselves as we truly are. And as you can see, as you can feel, the law is very direct. The law is never gracious, but the law never lies. He tells the truth as it presents itself on the ground of our hearts. And what he finds there cannot be assailed. What he finds there cannot be disproven. We are just as the law has described us. And we may as well not scoff at his determinations. The best thing we can do is to be quiet and to be humble before our God. That is the purpose of the law, to humble us by direct and cutting assessment. 
The second purpose of the law, Paul says, is so that all the world will be accountable to God. So that every person will be aware of the charges leveled against us. So that no one can claim that they didn't know the truth about themselves on the day of judgment. So that the whole world will be accountable to God. Because, Paul says in verse 20, by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in God's sight. Because, as far as the law is concerned, we've already failed miserably, and there is no recovery for us. There is no way we can get back in time or go back in time to correct our missteps. The crimes have already been committed, and even though today we are trying to turn over a new leaf, we still have to answer for yesterday's sins. There is no statute of limitations on sin. And it is only through the law of God that we become aware that we have missed the mark. Paul says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. And as we read this, it's easy for us Christians to feel at ease because as far as we understand the gospel, as far as we understand theology, we're not under the law. We're under grace. <laughs> it's easy for us to imagine that Paul's not talking about us. He's talking about those sinners. Because we're not under the law. We're under grace. This doesn't apply. In fact, sometimes we feel so superior that we even feel like we're standing beside the law. As he casts judgment on the whole world, we're beside him. Yeah, tell them about themselves. Get them straight, law. But no. We're not on the side of the law because the law is not only reading those outside of the faith. The law is indiscriminate in its judgment. The law does not, listen to this, listen to this. The law does not recognize grace or faith. It's not even in his vocabulary. <laughs> the law does not recognize grace the law does not recognize faith. He sees and he knows the reality on the ground and he calls it straight like he sees it. And as far as the law is concerned, both the saint and the sinner are all in the same boat. Wait a minute now, that's not sounding right. That's not sounding right. But is he right? Is the law right? Of course he is. I don't need to answer that question for you. You can look at your own life right now and you can see that he's correct. You don't even need to take a deep dive into yourself to know that his assessment of your moral standing is right on point. But this brings up an important question for the Christian. If we have been saved by God's grace, can we afford to disregard the law altogether? Do we have to pay any attention to his assessment? Since we've given our lives to Jesus Christ, since we have been justified by hope, 
Do we even have to pay attention to the law? Do we even need to care what he thinks about us? Can we just ignore the law? There are some in Christianity, there are many in Christianity who would say, yes, we can disregard the law. There are many who would say that the law is unnecessary and inconsequential for the believer, that the law no longer applies. But I want to tell you something today. That this is simply not the case. The law still applies to the believer just as it does to the rest of the world. His assessment is still accurate about the believer, just as accurate as it is about his assessment of the world. Even though we're saved by grace, the law still plays a very prominent role in our walk with God. But what is that role? The role of the law in the life of the believer is to continuously make us aware of our sin so that we do not become so cavalier that we dishonor God by our words and by our deeds. Otherwise, why would the believer be instructed to confess in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9? Where John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is why the law remains useful to the believer, because without the law, we would not be aware of sin. And if we're not aware of our sins, we can't confess our sins. We would find no forgiveness in Jesus Christ. The law is essential in the life of the believer. The law is still very useful as a resource instead of as a judge. So then, we should respect the law of God. And we should readily and speedily agree with the law when he calls us out for our sins and our shortcomings. We should put up no defense. There is no need to hem and haw about how we're saved by grace. Because the truth of the matter is that even though we're saved in many ways and in the reality on the ground, apart from our hope in Jesus Christ, we are still just like those who don't know Jesus. Often in our words, more often in our actions, we agree with the law that the law is correct and I am sinful. And listen to this. If we do not respect the law of God, we may not find the grace of God. When I was in the military, I was placed on the inaugural committee for George H.W. Bush I. On a Monday morning, we were instructed to be at the White House for a meeting to discuss crowd control around the White House during the inauguration day. I don't know if you've ever been to the White House before, but when you approach the gate, you're met immediately with the Secret Service guy. And his first question to you is, what business do you have here? First question, what business do you have here? And what the driver does or is supposed to do is provide whatever forms we have, 
demonstrating the fact that we have been invited to the White House by the White House staff. That's what's supposed to happen. And we all know that it would be a fatal mistake to try to roll past the Secret Service Guard, even though you have a personal invitation to be there. You can't just blow past him. And if you try to blow past him, you're going to have a lot of problems. Furthermore, when he asked the question, what business do you have here? It would be, you all right, baby? All right. Yeah. When I was his age, I could have done that too. At 56, he would have called an ambulance. Um, it would be a fatal mistake to blow past the Secret Service guy. And if you do, you'd find yourself in a world of hurt. It's a red flag if you get to the gate and they ask you what are you doing here and you start protesting the examination. How dare you ask me that question? I've been invited by the president. I have a right to be here. You have no right to stop me. I'm invited. Stand aside, step aside. That would be a big mistake. That would be a huge red flag. If you carried on like that at the gate of the White House, you may get in eventually, but you're going to be severely delayed probably shaken up a little bit by the Secret Service because your actions do not demonstrate that you belong. Your actions are making it seem like just maybe you shouldn't be here. Your insecurity, your unwillingness to cooperate with the people that are charged with guarding the president make you seem suspicious. Because people who belong, people who have clearance to be on the White House premises. They don't mind being asked questions by the Secret Service. They know that the Secret Service has a job to do, and the sooner they comply with the protocols, the sooner they can enter and be on their way. The law of God is the Secret Service of heaven. Standing at the gates checking the credentials of the saved and the unsaved alike, verifying that we have clearance to approach God's throne. What is your business here? So every day, hopefully every day, the believer pulls up to the gate of heaven in prayer. And immediately you're met with a barrage of questions. The first one being, what business do you have here? And I say, I say in prayer to the law, I say, I've been summoned here by God. But as the law begins to examine my heart in that very moment, he determines that I am not righteous. Calvin, you're, you can't come in here, you're not righteous. You don't belong here. The only people who can come close to God are the righteous, and you're not it. I could stay there on my knees in prayer and protest his findings. I can go on and on about how I'm saved by grace. But all that would do is make me look suspicious to the law. He would take my actions as a confirmation that I do not belong in the kingdom of God. Why not? Because I do not respect the law that God has ordained. If you do not respect the law, you cannot respect God. <laughs> huh. 
Because if I did belong to the kingdom of God, if I did in fact have access, I would respect the detail that is in charge of securing heaven's gates. I would not come into the kingdom to contaminate it with my own corruption, but I would close my mouth and humble myself and confess my sins. Law, I agree, I don't belong here. But it is by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, my Lord, that I ask you to move aside and let me proceed forward. And you know how guilt is sometimes. You're trying to pray and guilt won't let you pray because you feel so unrighteous and so unholy. That's when you tell the law, listen, law, go get Jesus. Bring Jesus to the gate. <laughs> Bring Jesus out. I can't explain anymore. I've done my best to explain what's going on. But since you don't seem to understand grace, call your boss. And the boss comes and says, yeah, law, you're right, you're right. But he's justified by my blood. So stand aside. Come on, Calvin. But if I'm self-righteous, pretending to be what I am not, using grace as an excuse for my own sin, refusing to humble myself before the law, guess what? Maybe you don't belong here. <laughs> Maybe you don't deserve to see the master. What am I saying then? All I'm saying is this, that the law is a servant of God. And we should respect and honor the servants of God. The law is the servant of God, not the servant of man, not even the servant of saved mankind. And he is to be respected. His determinations are to be taken seriously. And it is only after you and I give the law his just due and close our mouths in humility that we receive God's grace and we enter into the throne of God. There is none righteous, brothers and sisters, not even one, not even me. And the only one who can override this law is God Almighty himself. So that in, in closing, the law simply serves God to make the believer aware of her sins so that we can appeal to Jesus Christ for help. And if we're sincere and if we're humble, we find grace and help in our time of need. Let's pray. Father God, we come humbly before you this morning. First, thanking you for sending your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our sins. And we confess this morning that our hearts are prone to wander, always prone to leave the God that we love. And we agree with the law that it is good, that the law's assessment of our morality is accurate. And instead of making any excuses, Lord, we simply ask you for your forgiveness. Forgive us for our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And together we thank you for the law that has made us aware of our sins.
and we do not kick against the law, but we agree. And with all our hearts, we desire to one day be conformed entirely to the image of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Until then, while we live here together in the now and the not yet, pray that you'll keep us humble, that you'll give us wisdom, that you'll forgive us but also cleanse us, that you transform us by the renewing of our minds. But even then, we ask you, Lord God, to ward off all self-righteousness, all self-sufficiency, so that we can walk humbly with our God. In Jesus' name. <laughs>